In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hello, I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and welcome to the Voices of King, a 13-part podcast from the AJC. Originally recorded in 2008 for a short documentary, we sat down with 13 people who were close to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in life and in death. This podcast was originally released in 2018 to mark the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's death. Now, as we move into a new era, we are revisiting these important interviews to give you a glimpse inside the making of history. We were proud to document these conversations then, and we are proud to present them to you today. He went on to defy those who sought to kill him. I'm not fearing any man. I ran to the car, what happened, what happened? And when I turn around, then I can see. All I was thinking about was, Lord, don't let him die. You know, don't let him die, don't let him die. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Memphis. I don't go back there. I've been there, but I haven't been there. There's nothing there that I want to remember, really. Why King? Why the Prince of Peace? That was going through my mind. This man, this one man, he taught us how to live, and he taught us how to die. This is The Voices of King, a podcast of 13 voices, 13 people who bore witness to the last days of the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as told to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ryan Horn. He said to me on more than one occasion that he probably wouldn't live to be 40 years of age. I said, come on, man, you're going to live till your beard reaches down to the ground. You'll be hobbling around on a cane, but you're going to live a long time. Of course, he died at 39. The voice you heard is that of Reverend Joseph Lowry. In a story where some of the details, like when and where it happened, escapes Reverend Joseph Lowry, he tells it anyway. He knows for sure it was a small town and that they were demonstrating, as they did often. But this time, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wanted to pray before they continued, so they knelt down together, along with Ralph David Abernathy. Now, they knew the Ku Klux Klan were not far off. They could feel a mob brewing. But after the prayer, Dr. King told Lowry that Ralph's eyes were still open as they bowed their heads during the prayer. Lowry, with the quick wit that's part of his character DNA, responded to King, well, how did you know his eyes were open? It was this kind of humor, even in the face of danger, or even possible death, that makes Joseph Lowry stand out among his peers in the civil rights movement. A close friend of King, the two quickly bonded early in their careers as ministers, and the respect would never waver. Lowry, a minister of the United Methodist Church for nearly 60 years, is a master theologist and speaker, and it shows in his 2008 interview with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
the Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient, who went on to become a spiritual advisor for Barack Obama, dissects the genius behind some of the sermons, speeches, and letters Dr. King wrote during his time as a leader in the civil rights movement. Here's AJC reporter Ernie Suggs. If you can put a bow on the civil rights movement, and you don't want to put a bow on it to say it's ended, but considering where Joseph Lowry came from, where Martin Luther King came from, where the civil rights movement came from, for him to stand on the steps in 2009 of the the U.S. Capitol and recite the Negro National Anthem for the first black United States president is an amazing journey. That's an amazing kind of, and I don't want to say endpoint, but it's an amazing landmark and where we were, what he is seen as a civil rights leader to go from, you know, his house, we talked about bombings, his house was bombed, you know, his, you know, he was in a limousine or not a limousine, but um, he was leading a march and his wife was in the car behind the march and his wife's car was shot up. You know, his wife survived, obviously, uh, thank God. But, you know, he's seen a lot. He's done a lot. And for him to kind of like, you know, uh, in the latter part of his career do that, it was just an amazing thing. And, you know, like you said, he's kind of the mayor of the city. He's kind of the mayor of, they call him the dean of civil rights because he's still, you know, one of those final civil rights leaders, you know, who still practices civil rights or still practices up until his old, older age. So, you know, he's, he's, you know, one word to describe him in our younger vernacular, he's the man. <laughs> I'm Joseph Lowry, co-founder President Emeritus of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and convener chair of the Coalition for the People's Agenda. No, that's good. And, okay. and you could just go ahead. You okay. Well, Dr. Lyra, tell me about what we're doing is just looking at Dr. King's life or looking at his death particularly. Tell me a little bit, first of all, about your relationship with him leading up to, I know you were very well involved in SCLC. Well, I first met Martin uh, at a seminar at Boston University that I attended when I was pastoring in Mobile, Alabama. And he was there in school and attended that seminar. We met, talked briefly. Then I didn't see him anymore until he came to uh, Dexter uh, in 1955 to pastor. And then we were both on program at an Alabama Council on Human Relations conference in Montgomery. And after I spoke, he spoke, and after the session we uh, complimented each other with the usual preacheristic exaggerations about how well we did. And we struck up a friendship, promised to preach for each other. And uh, that friendship lasted until his untimely, unfortunate death, April 4th, 1968. Now, let me let me jump around a little bit, but you know, we all regard you, and Ebony Magazine talked about how you were one of the greatest preachers of our generation. Did you and him ever have any competition, or was there ever any kind of debate between you and him about who was better? No. <laughs> no, I conceded uh-huh. that he was the greater preacher. And of course, he was polite enough to argue that I was uh-huh. the greater preacher, but Really, we didn't take each other that seriously. Uh-huh. Didn't take Ebony that seriously. They, they said they were going to present the 15 greatest, so they had to find 15 people. And uh, fortunately, I was one of them. But Martin was, uh, I think, uh, his preaching was timeless. And if you don't think so, 
40 years later read any of his sermons. They're just as appropriate, just as challenging uh, related to the issues of today as they were to issues during his lifetime. That uh, I have a dream, of course, is, is the one that you fellas made the most famous. But my favorite is the statement he, the letter he wrote while in the Birmingham jail in 63. Uh, he wrote part of it on newspaper, part of it on toilet paper, part of it on sacks, because they wouldn't provide any stationery for him. He was a prisoner, uh, and they, they, they treated him as a prisoner. But there, you know, he was arrested, and uh, he chose that time, when he didn't have much else to do, to respond to a statement issued by several white ministers in Birmingham who were approving the mission that brought them to Birmingham, but questioning the timing, which was an interesting tactic of those who opposed the movement by saying, you're right, we accept the premise on which you base your movement. Segregation needs to go and discrimination must come to an end. What we question is the timing. This is not the time. Uh, we're on the verge of working out some things here. We got a new mayor coming in, etc. Uh, call it off and come back at a later date. And of course, Martin recognized that most of those, many of those who said later, really meant never. And for them, never was the best time to challenge the status quo. And so he had to resist that uh, uh, admonition and say to them that the time to do what is right is always now. And he answered them uh, in both sociological and theological and political terms. And he spoke to, uh, he quoted uh, uh, Tillich, the Protestant, he quoted Aquinas, the uh, Catholic, he quoted Niebuhr, uh, 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 some other great Jewish thinker, to address all the faith of those who had sent, who had composed a statement. And he uh, talked about the urgency of now. And uh, it was a profound, statement, and in my opinion, uh, opens a window into the soul of Martin Luther King more than any other well-known statement that he made or issued uh, at a critical time in the movement in Birmingham, which was a watershed. Birmingham was the introduction of mass jail-ins, uh, mass marches. Uh, it was the introduction of young people into the movement. As a matter of fact, it was young people, many high school students, who saved the movement in Birmingham because the adults had gone to jail to their limit. They, they had reached their maximum. And the uh, number of people willing to be jailed was dwindling. And the SCLC staff suggested, let's challenge the young people. The young people were eager beavers. They understood the issues and were anxious to participate. 
both for the romance of going to jail and marching uh, hand in hand and arm in arm, and both because they uh, recognize the dehumanizing elements in Birmingham public policy. I don't know that I can think of any one moment that stands out. There were so many, uh, so many. Mamad was such a remarkable fella who, who, who not only uh, was intellectually equipped to, to deal with academia and scholarship, but he was down to earth enough to deal with the humanness in all of us. And I guess, I guess some of the moments that stick with me are, are, are more humorous than I would like to admit. But in humor there is profundity. Martin used to tease, if he likes you, he would tease you. Humor never came through in his speeches because the situation was so grave. But he, he had a great sense of humor. And uh, he called, he used to introduce me as a moving figure in the Methodist Church. That's because of the itinerant nature of our minister, you know. And, and, and that's the way he would introduce me. Uh, and they would tease me because, Joe, you're in Mobile now, but where will you be next year, you know? So this is Reverend Dr. Joseph Lowry, my good friend. He is a moving figure <laughs> in the Methodist Church. And, and, and that let me know that he loved me. He, he, was, he, was, he didn't play and tease with people that he didn't care about. And he teased, he could tease hard, but never in ridicule. Always in fun, but never denigrating anybody. And I guess those moments when we could laugh together uh, are precious moments. I remember once he talked about, I don't know where we're in social circle or some small town, and there were the clan folks around and a potential mob and we knelt for pray, to pray. And Martin said, obviously, I looked up and Ralph hadn't closed his eyes. He was praying with his eyes open. And I said to him, how do you know if your eyes weren't open too? <laughs> that's, that's good, actually, because what's great about that is that, you know, it's, it's in the same light of what, you know, um, people like Andrew Young would say, um, or um, Reverend Kyles, you know, they, they remember the jokes. And the, the fun that he would have. You know. Andy didn't tell you, I'm sure, that one of Martin's favorite story was, and favorite phrases was, "Where is Andy? You know, has <laughs> anybody seen Andy?" And I told the story once. I believe Bill Cosby was here for a dinner. We were raising money once, and I told the story that uh, we were looking. Some crisis was and couldn't find Andy. And finally, they searched in the basement and found Andy in the bathroom looking in the mirror. And he said, you know, I do look like Harry Belafonte, don't I? And, and, and Bill Cosby was so moved by that, the next week he sent me a check for $5,000 to help with SCLC work. He said, boy, you got some comedian in you. <laughs> but Andy didn't tell you that one, did he? <laughs> but those were moments, he was a great fella. He, was, uh, he had a great sense of humor and he was warm. It was warm, it was warm, but that's what makes you sad about his death, that it took such a warm and loving and caring human being to think that people could be so violent as to kill 
a man who was a lover of people, he cared, a peaceful warrior, a man who was thoroughly committed to nonviolence and yet died at the hand of a violent act. I was not in Memphis, I was going to Nashville at the call of the bishop because we were dissolving the central jurisdiction in the United Methodist Church. That was the racially segregated jurisdiction. The others were geographic, but the central jurisdiction was racial. Uh, it was to accommodate the wishes of the southern wing of the Methodist Church when they merged certain divisions. And I had gone to Nashville to, uh, to be a part of the ceremonial uh, benediction to the central jurisdiction in Tennessee. And uh, Martin, of course, was, was uh, in Memphis, not feeling well, and asked Ralph if he would speak at the temple, Mason Temple that night. But the people were expecting Martin. And Ralph sensed that when he got there and sent word to Martin, this is your crowd, come. And so Martin did and he went and he, and he spoke from his soul, from his heart, that uh, he knew he was being stalked. He was in my house in Birmingham a few weeks prior to going to Memphis. I was passing church in Birmingham and he talked about the fact that he felt he was being stalked. And that he said to me on more than one occasion that he probably wouldn't live to be 40 years of age. I said, come on man, you're gonna live till your beard reaches down to the ground. You'll be hobbling around on a cane, but you're gonna live a long time. Of course he died at 39. But it never uh, deterred, nor caused him to detour on his road to, to liberation and to the struggle. Uh, so that night in Memphis, he, those who knew him best, sensed a sort of an attitude of, of uh, sadness and, and uh, termination. I may not get there with you, he said, but we as the people will get there. And then he went on to defy those who sought to kill him. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory. It was a very moving, emotional, traumatic expression of the soul of Martin Luther King in the midst of travail and crisis. We will continue after a short... Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements... Are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. For break. Welcome back to the Voices of King. I'm Ryan Horn.
We were listening to an interview with Joseph Lowry. Here's AJC reporter Ernie Suggs, who conducted the interview back in 2008. I mean, people talk about, you know, Martin Luther King as a great speaker. But, you know, he was also a very, very deeply rooted scholar, theologian, you know. And people don't, you know, I think, I think it would do a lot of people a lot of, one, a lot of good to kind of read some of Martin Luther King's speeches, read some of his letters, just to kind of see. Because, you know, there's this kind of revisionist, um, revisionist trope that goes around that people only know I have a dream. They only know parts of I have a dream, but they don't really know a lot of what, he, what else he said, what else he was talking about, you know, Vietnam. The war on poverty, you know, things of that nature. He talks about the speech uh, a year before King's death. Yeah, about Vietnam. The Vietnam speech was a very controversial speech uh, that 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 you know angered a lot of people, including you know, uh, Lyndon Johnson, who was one of his biggest allies two or three years earlier. So, he was a very radical thinker. Right. Yeah, and Joe Lowry is able to kind of put that all into context. The people who were opposing us not only didn't believe in nonviolence. They were fanatical about violence. They thought they could solve problems by getting rid of the people who were the perpetrators from their perspective. They didn't know that you don't kill ideas with bullets. You don't destroy uh, philosophies and commitments by bombs. It takes more than that. And therefore, they mistakenly thought they could stop the movement by killing those who were involved. So we all had to make a commitment and make a decision that uh, the risk, the peril is real. And you have to decide whether you think it's worth it. Nobody else can make that decision for you. There were those who, who dropped out. There were those who couldn't refuse to take weapons on demonstrations to defend themselves. And we had prayer and workshops uh, leading up to those demonstrations to, to help people find the will and the power to present your bodies uh, before uh, those who would be executioners. Because you're committed to a cause, and you felt that cause was worth even your life. You weren't, you weren't anxious to die, but you couldn't avoid the struggle and the danger. So you took your chances, and you trusted God, and you put your hand in His hand, and and uh, you said, uh, 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 "Here I am. Uh, watch over me, if you will." But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Uh, here I am. Uh, watch over me, if you will. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, following Jesus. So we, we took the risk, and we knew Martin was the principal target because he was the principal spokesperson. And he knew it, we all knew it, but we went on because we were we were committed, and uh, in Decatur, Alabama, for example, in 1979, 11 years after Martin died, I led a march on behalf of uh, Tommy Lee Hines, a young mentally challenged black lad in Decatur, Alabama, who uh, couldn't ride a bike, 
because he didn't have the coordination between mind and muscle. And yet he was accused of raping two white women and driving an automobile in the process. So we were trying to save him and they came to us before we marched and news reporters, bless your heart, uh, said we heard the, the, the radio, the C, CBs, is that right, CBs? Yes. Uh, over the CBs that uh, they're going to kill you. They're going to kill John Nettles. They're going to kill Codreader if you march downtown on behalf of Tommy Lee Hines. And so we went in the church and told everybody about the threats. If you don't want to go, don't go. If you do go, leave your weapons here. Not even a fingernail file or a small pocket knife. You must leave here. Leave them here. I wouldn't let my wife march with me as she had on many occasions before. Finally she panicked and didn't know what to do. And she decided she was getting out of there. So she got up and took the steering wheel and mashed on the salary and drove through the crowd out of the fray back into the black community where I received it with open arms because they wouldn't let me go back. But when you make a commitment, you know, to take up the cross, you just trust the Lord and, and go on in faith. Yeah. And that's what Martin did. And when he died, it was a great loss to us. And even though we were not, not unaware of the danger, we still weren't ready to lose him. It was a sad day for us. And I was on a train coming back from Nashville on that day. And when I got to the railroad station, I saw my wife and two of the kids standing, waiting for me. And I was perplexed because it was only the last minute I decided to catch a train, left my car parked at the station. I wasn't even sure she knew I was on the train. But she learned and she was waiting. I saw a sad and lonely expression on her face. And I knew something was wrong. And I, um, I thought maybe the third child who was not there, something had happened. But she told me Martin had been shot and was dead. And that the media folks were looking for me. And I went on the radio to try to uh, say to people, Martin would want us now to be calm and to be more determined than ever to continue the struggle until justice rose down like waters. But I miss him almost as much 40 years later as I did 40 minutes yeah. after I learned of his death. What, what was going through your, your, when you saw your wife and she told you, what immediately went through your mind before you even got on the radio and all that stuff? When I learned or before when you I learned? When you learned, yeah. Well, I was stricken with sadness and I wanted to, to go home and weep. I tried to call uh, Coretta and Daddy King. I couldn't get through because he had been dead for over an hour or so by then. And people were jamming the telephones. Then I wanted to go to the church. I don't remember if I did or not. I don't remember if I went straight to the church or later to the church, but I did go to radio stations and call for calm. But it was a sense of great loss. I felt a whole 
uh, mess of emotions, anger, uh, sadness, fear, uh, and yet uh, determination, uh, real grits that we would not let this turn us around. How did you find the, because right, right after that, and I'm going to jump back for a second, but how did you all find the strength to carry on without him? Particularly, I mean, people like you, because some people left, left, right? Yes, but not many. Okay. Uh, most of us stayed. Uh, some left later to go into politics, to do other things. But some of us stayed. And uh, I never left. I couldn't find it in me to lose. I've been urged to run for public office, uh, to go into other fields, but uh, I'm a pastor. Remember, I take it that you did come down to Atlanta for the funeral. Do you remember that day and what it, what the, what the city felt like that day? Yes, but mostly I remember the crowds. You know, it was everywhere. It was masses of layers of people and uh, sadness and yet a grim determination that this was not the end, that we would move on from here in his memory. And uh, it was a day of mixed emotion for me. I was due to speak at the funeral and two of my best friends in the world <laughs> conspired to, to scratch me off the program. Really? Yes. We, the, the hour grew. The evening, you know, the time passed and the program was long. And Ralph and Ben Hooks were sitting near each other near the microphone. I was sitting down, down the way, waiting my turn as chairman of the board to speak. And in their great wisdom, Ralph and Ben decided that they had to cut some people off the program. And they said, let's cut some of them and some of us. So they cut Ivan Allen, the mayor, for them. And they cut the chairman of the board, me, for us. And so I didn't get to speak. All right, so let me, let me ask you this. You're in front of the whole world now. What would you have said? Coretta published it, I think, in her book. So go find the book and read it. I don't have the slightest idea what I said. But she, she felt bad about it and later asked me if I, and I, I, I think I did. I think I gave her okay. the script that I couldn't recover. Okay. I, was, I would have spoken on behalf of the board. Okay. And I would have expressed the great loss that the board felt in losing our leader. But that we were determined in his memory uh, that we would carry on. And we called upon people everywhere to join us in the continuing struggle. So 40 years later, where are we in the struggle? And talk a little bit about yourself and what you've <coughs> been able to contribute as a civil man. And um, I mean, is he the manifestation of what you all work for? Well, I think he's a symbol of progress. He's a symbol of of, uh, and he's a manifestation of the, of the reconciling work of the church. Uh, and his message is one of healing and bringing together the broken parts. And that's why I think it's so powerful. What attracted me to him, even before our, 
Uh, I stood with him at Georgia Tech when he came. What, what would you say is the significance or why, if someone to ask, why should we celebrate or remember or commemorate the death of Martin Luther King? What would your answer be as far as the importance of it? Well, I, I think you, you, you give me an opportunity for another sermon. <laughs> uh, the word, the term 40 is a symbolic number. It rained 40 days and 40 nights without stopping. Uh, they say the 40-yard dash is the greatest test of athleticism. Uh, in some communions, uh, you don't reach the age of, of accountability, you get 40. Uh, if you die before you're 40, you're not accountable, you go straight to heaven. But after 40, you have to assume responsibility. So 40 is an interesting number. It's over and over in the Bible. And uh, uh, so I think it has that symbolism over there. But for Martin, Martin is historic for many reasons, but Martin's leadership helped us establish the fact that you can achieve social change without bloodshed, without a violent revolution. It was a nonviolent revolution. Of course there was bloodshed, but it wasn't our fault. <laughs> we, we, we were the victims of, of violence, not the perpetrators. So he established the efficacy of nonviolence in achieving social change. Uh, it, it, it changed America. Uh, Martin's death, strangely enough, probably empowered Lyndon Johnson to get the Civil Rights Act, I mean to get the Voting Rights Act, to get uh, uh, many uh, legislative things, not the Civil Rights or Voting Rights, but other legislative achievements came with his death. Just as Kennedy's death empowered him to do the Voting Rights Act and the Public Accommodations Act, Martin's death showed the terrible cruelty of those who oppose racial justice. It demonstrated exactly how far people would go to stop progress. And so he made a great sacrifice and blood is a symbol of redemption and change just as 40 is the number that does it. So uh, we have, then you know the nation, the nation did something that it had never done before. It honored a man with a holiday, and we've never done that. Not even the president, Lincoln or Washington. We don't. It's not universal, like Martin's birthday. And the nation was not only honoring Martin. I think the nation was saying something that was self-defining when it did it. It said, "We are a nation." that welcomes struggle for justice. Because we were born ourselves as a nation, out of bloodshed, out of the Christmas addicts, out of those who died in the war for independence. Uh, and so his death symbolizes the nation's, and the holiday symbolizes the nation's commitment to racial justice and human dignity. dignity. So I think it's, it's uh, it's, uh, it would be 
incredible to establish a holiday honoring a man that you don't even commemorate his passing. So I think it's just logical that we celebrate his death. We don't. Uh, I'm going to Memphis every year. I started going a few years ago because AFSME, which was the union Martin joined, and he died for poor people. Uh, they sort of let the ball, let they fumble the ball and celebrate and observe it. And they, Memphis, I don't think, has ever really come to terms with what happened that April the 4th. And so when this young man named Salisbury, Professor Lemoyne, started the April 4th Foundation, he has a dinner every year. I've been going for several years now to identify in Memphis with my wife has a drum major for Justice Tenner here every April 4th to give awards to people who are drum majors for justice uh, in their respective fields in honor of Martin. This year, Whitaker, what's his name? Forrest. Forrest Whitaker. Only the fourth black actor to get the Academy Award. Male actor is one of the honors. Little girl who sang at the Academy Awards will be there. Three guys who were uh, garbage workers, sanitation workers in Memphis uh, and led that movement will be here to receive the drum major for Justice Award this year at that dinner, April 4th at the Sheraton. So I think it's altogether fitting that we not only observe the birthday, but April 4th reminds us where the roads of violence and hate lead to bloodshed and to the loss of a great American who could have still been contributing. Martin was um, eight, seven years younger. How he would have been, what, 79? Yeah. Uh, he was, in, in, he was born in 29, so he'd been 79. I'm 86, so he's seven years my Jew, so he could have been still contributing. And look where the roads of violence and hate lead. And so we must remind ourselves that we need to turn away from violence. The price is too great. In the next episode of The Voices of King, you will hear an emotional interview from the late Ralph David Abernathy III, who was the son of Reverend David Abernathy, King's right-hand man. Now, Abernathy III, a former Georgia senator, gives a unique perspective of growing up as a child in the movement, one who lost his Uncle Martin. A special thanks to AJC reporters Rosalind Bentley and Ernie Suggs. Also to Senior Editor of Visuals Sandra Brown, Senior Managing Editor Mark Wallagore, and our Editor-in-Chief Kevin Raleigh. Be sure to visit www.ajc.com backslash MLK50 for the AJC's coverage of honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm Ryan Horn, and you've been listening to The Voices of King. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.